Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm sorry that uh, I can't be here with you in person today. Um, I'm a close contact uh, with COVID, and for that reason, uh, I, I thought it was uh, prudent not to come in person and jeopardise people. Uh, and so I'm coming to you from a pre-recorded video. Well, many of you may know that I grew up uh, on a farm. Most of the time, that was pretty cool. Uh, having 2,000 acres to play hide-and-seek with my brothers and sisters was uh, pretty good most of the time. But there was a downside uh, because my dad thought it was pretty handy to have my brother and I as free slave labour on tap uh, to be used whenever he wanted. One of the jobs that I dreaded most growing up was driving the ute uh, as a young kid. And in one particular paddock, the Long Creek paddock. Now, just to give you a bit of context, the Long Creek wasn't really a creek. It was actually a swamp running down the middle of the paddock. And uh, I would have nightmares over, but I had, I had this, this pathological fear of running into the creek and I would have nightmares of sliding down the hill into the creek, getting bogged and slowly uh, um, sinking into a watery death before I had time to escape the, uh, from, the, from the ute. Now, before you think that, that that's a little bit over the top, uh, a little bit uh, illogical, yes, it was, but uh, I was of a tender age at the time. Uh, in, my, in my mind, I was only uh, about four years old, uh, but in truth, I was probably five or six when Dad gave me the job of driving the truck in the Long Creek paddock. And what I did, uh, what Dad would do, he, he put me in the truck and uh, he would make me steer a course down the middle of the paddock. There was a fence on the top side, the creek on the bottom side, and there was a slope. Uh, running down to the creek. Uh, in truth, there was plenty of room to chart a course down the middle of the paddock. Uh, plenty of room between the fence on the top side and the creek on the bottom side. So Dad puts me in the seat uh, to, to steer the truck. Uh, when I say drive the truck, that was a bit of an exaggeration. It was actually just steering. Dad would put the, the truck in uh, first gear and I would just putt along steering. All I had to do was steer a straight line. I got in the truck, Dad got on the back to feed the cattle and immediately as I started, I knew what I needed to do but I was completely incapable of doing it. I was frozen by fear. I drove straight up to the fence. <clears throat> I hugged the fence and scraped the fence posts but unbeknownst to me, Dad was off the back of the truck feeding the cattle with hay uh, and he, he was jammed up between the fence post and the truck and I heard him yell out uh, and that was the end of my truck driving career for at least um, a year or two. Now you may be wondering why do I tell this story? Well I tell this story to make a point that even though I knew exactly what I should have done, I was powerless to carry it through. I knew exactly what my instructions were to drive a straight course down the middle of the paddock. But as soon as I took that wheel, 
I was paralysed by my fear of the swamp and I drove straight up to the fence. I was a prisoner to the swamp. And in Judges 2, we get a glimpse of the recurring story of the whole book where Israel know exactly what they were meant to do, obey the word of God and serve him, but they are prisoners to their sin. They are incapable of being faithful and serving God. And yet, God, despite their unfaithfulness, does not abandon his people. Instead, he takes pity on them by raising up judges who save them in surprising and unexpected ways. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, we thank you for this message uh, of judges and we thank you for the story that we have before us in chapters 2 and 3. The story of people who are stiff-necked and incapable of following you and yet God refuses to abandon them. Uh, Thank you, God, that you are a God who is faithful. You are a God who doesn't give up on us. And we pray that you will give us ears to hear that through the message of Judges, uh, you are also faithful to us. Uh, In the gospel, you have refused to give up on us. And uh, you uh, you are with us and you have delivered us, even though we don't deserve to be saved. And we pray that you would help us to hear this message in Jesus' name. Amen. We pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 6. If you were here last week, you'll remember that the Israelites were supposed to finish the job of taking the land and and wiping out the Canaanites who lived there. Uh, As we saw before, it wasn't just God being bloodthirsty, but their religion and culture was so dangerous and toxic to the Israelites that God knew that if they coexisted with them, they would drag the Israelites down into idolatry, temple prostitution, child sacrifice and completely abandoning God. And so they had very clear instructions from God. But already in chapter 1, they compromised and left a heap of the Canaanites to live with them in the land. And so the seeds of trouble were sown. And now, as we come to chapter 2, we find the people reaping that trouble. In verses 6 to 10, the author reviews for us what happened under Joshua while he was still leading Israel. Look at me uh, with me to uh, chapter 2, verse 7. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the, of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. But then Joshua died. Verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And that spelled disaster. Things go downhill fast. And that's our first point, that Israel abandons God. Verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him 
and serve Baal and the Ashtoreths. Um, I think the ESV version captures the meaning better. The ESV says they abandoned the Lord and they bowed down to the Baals. The problem started in verse 10 when another generation grew up who didn't know the Lord. The generation under Joshua and their elders failed to teach their children and how quickly things unravel. It only takes one generation because they didn't know the Lord. Oh, they may have kept up appearances of religion, doing the outward stuff, sacrifices, offerings, but there was no personal involvement, no relationship with the Lord. And friends, let this serve as a warning to us. While whole denominations of the church have abandoned the gospel because they failed to disciple the younger generation, Sweck is only one generation away from going the same way. If we fail to teach our children to know the Lord, not just about him, but to know him as their father, to trust in Jesus as their saviour and serve him as their king. Parents, you have a high calling to teach your children. And you who are a bit older in the church, you have a high calling to adopt younger believers and disciple them. Read the Bible with them. Model to them how to pray. Model to them how to walk with Jesus in every aspect of life. The Israelites quickly abandoned Yahweh and noticed that they reaped the trouble that they had sown. Because they left the Canaanites in the land, they ended up chasing after and serving the Baals, the Canaanite gods. Then, unsurprisingly, the hand of God turns against his people. Verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Israel is unfaithful and she reaps what she sows. Trouble and distress come from the enemies of God. But even in the act of bringing judgment to his people, God is being faithful. He will not abandon his people, even though they have abandoned him. And that's our second point. God will not abandon his people. Verse 15 says that the hand of God was against Israel just as he had sworn to them, just as he had promised. You see, when God made a covenant with the people of Israel, he said that he would always be faithful to Israel. But if they proved unfaithful to God, God would punish them. Their enemies would defeat them. And that's exactly what we see playing out here in Judges. God is doing exactly as he said he would. 
He continues to be faithful even when the people abandon him. God doesn't abandon Israel. He doesn't just throw up his arms and walk out on them. Because he loves them and cares for them, he will not just leave them to their own devices. A bit like a parent with a child. Imagine a teenager caught up in drugs, uh, caught taking drugs by his parents. Now, if they just shrug their shoulders and say, boys will be boys and ignore it, that tells us that they're not very loving parents, doesn't it? That they don't really have the well-being of their boy in mind. But if they really care about how he turns out, if they really love him, they will want him to learn a lesson from the experience. And so they're going to discipline him, aren't they? They're going to act uh, on, on um, what they've found him doing. They're not going to leave him to his own devices. Because they love him, they want him to change. God loves his people, no matter how flaky and rebellious they are. He is not willing to abandon them to their own devices. And so he sends them trouble in the form of these enemies who will teach them a lesson and turn them back to him. But that's not where God's care for his people ends. He doesn't just wait for them to cry out to him. He takes the initiative. Look at verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Notice that they, there's no repenting involved or being sorry for their sins. No suggestion that the people have changed one little bit. Only that they are in terrible distress. And God responds with compassion and grace by sending a judge to save them. Have a look at verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. Again, the ESV puts it better. It says, The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. God in his kindness saved the people when they didn't deserve saving. And then the Israelites responded with gratitude and repented of their sin and gladly served the Lord. But wait, that's not how the story ends, is it? How do the people respond to God's kindness? It's there in verse 17. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from their ways, from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Verse 19. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. <coughs> they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. While the judge was alive, the people followed God. But as soon as he died, they reverted to their default position of rebellion. And in fact, we're told that they became even more corrupt 
than their fathers. The story of Judges, as we see, is a repeating cycle. The people sin. God sends a judge. He gives relief from their distress and they enjoy a period of peace while the judge lives. The judge dies. They fall back into sin. Only it's not really a cycle because it's a downward spiral. Like when you pull water from the, when the, you pull the plug out of the bathtub, the water goes down and down and eventually goes down the drain. Judges is a depressing downward spiral of depravity. A people who abandon their God at the drop of a hat and get worse and worse. But mercifully, despite all that they deserve, they have a God who will not abandon his people. The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning and he raised up judges who saved them from their enemies. Now, as I said a minute ago, there's no mention of the people repenting of their sin. They groaned because of their affliction, but there's no evidence of a change of heart. And yet God, by his sheer grace, is willing to save his stubborn, rebellious people. He is unwilling to see them suffer under their enemies. And so he raises up for them a judge to save them. And that's our third point. God brings a very surprising saviour. The first judge, Othniel, that we read about in chapter 3, is Caleb's nephew. Remember Caleb? Uh, we met him last week, along with Joshua, one of the faithful spies who went up into the land. Uh, Othniel, his nephew, is only given a few verses in a pretty colourless description. He served as judge for 40 years, but he gets a bare three verses. But this little section isn't entirely boring. We hear that Israel was oppressed by one Cushan Rishatham. There's a mouthful. Uh, have a look at verse 8. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishatham, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. You can hear the rhyme there, can't you? Cushan Rishatham of Aram Naharaim. And that's meant to draw attention to his name. In the Hebrew, the name means Cushan double wickedness. And he comes from a place called Aram double river. Double evil from double river. Just a little picture of one bad dude, one bad king, who was going to get what was coming to him by God. But apart from that, there's nothing really about Othniel, this judge. Only that he kicked King Double Evil's butt and saved Israel. But then things get a little bit more spicy with our man Ehud, the next judge who comes along. He gets five times as much airtime as Othniel and a whole lot of gruesome detail thrown in about how he killed Eglon the Rotund, king of Moab. Have a look from verse 14 of chapter 3. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. That's a long time. A long time to wait before they cried out to God. That says something about 
Israel's spiritual state, doesn't it? They waited 18 long years before they thought that it might be a good idea to cry out to their God for help. And God, who is ever faithful to the people who abandoned him, answers their cry by sending Ehud. Verse 15. Again the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerar the Benjamite. It's an odd little detail, isn't it? That Ehud was left-handed and it sets the tone for quite an odd story. Let's quickly uh, describe how Ehud defeats Fat Eglon. Uh, Ehud straps a sword to his right leg hidden under his clothes. That's going to throw the king's secret service off because your normal garden variety assassin carries a sword on his left leg because he's right-handed. He reaches across and pulls it off his his left leg to uh, do the deed. So Ehud visits Eglon on the pretext of presenting a gift uh, to the king. After that, he tells Eglon that he has a secret message for him from God. Uh, Eglon then obliges and sends out his, uh, his uh, protectors, his bodyguards, and Ehud is left alone with fat Eglon. Let's pick up our tale in chapter 3, verse 21. Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Lovely little detail, isn't it? Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And then, thinking that Eglon was uh, sitting on the loo, his bodyguards wait until the point of embarrassment. But eventually they figure that enough's enough. They go in and find Eglon dead, while Ehud, meanwhile, is already well and truly out of Dodge City. And that's how Ehud defeats Eglon and the Moabites. It's a great yarn, isn't it? But we may be left wondering, why all this detail? What's the relevance of Ehud and his left hand. Unfortunately, most of, most of it goes over our heads, but if you were an Israelite reading this, it would blow your socks off because it's a story of the most surprising, unexpected way that God saves his people. God saves his people through strength, right? His power, uh, and that power is described through the Bible, as being in his right hand. Let's just look at a couple of examples. Exodus 15, 12. You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. Psalm 17, verse 7. Show me the wonders of your great love, you who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from from their foes. 
And then Psalm 45, verse 4. In your majesty rise forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. And then in the New Testament, Jesus now sits on his throne, ruling over creation at the right hand of God the Father, we're told. And so, in the book of Judges, when God intervenes and saves his people, of course, we expect him to stretch out his right hand and perform a mighty act of deliverance. But instead, who comes along but left-handed Ehud, son of Gerar, a Benjamite? Ironically, Benjamin means son of the right hand. Then in the Hebrew, the description for left-handed is literally a man with a bound-up right hand. A man with a bound-up right hand. That is, a right hand that doesn't work. In other words, being left-handed is a disability. Ehud is a man with a dud right hand. Remember that power and strength were seen as being in the right hand. So Ehud is introduced as a man with no strength because his right hand doesn't work, who is chosen to give a gift to Eglon. And, and maybe that's why Eglon was willing to let him in as an emissary from Israel because this left-handed handicapped man wasn't going to be a threat, was he? But then the plot goes the opposite way to what everyone expects. Verse 15 literally says, The people of Israel sent tribute by Ehud's hand to Eglon, the king of Mohad. God uses that left hand of Ehud, his weakness, to bring victory. God uses the most surprising, unexpected ways and the most unpromising, unexpected people to achieve his purposes. And he continues to delight in breaking out of the box that we put him in, blowing apart our expectations to show in ways that we could never dream of, that he is the king who holds everything in the palm of his hand, right hand and left hand, and that he is able to use any and every situation to do good and to bring salvation and deliverance. And God continues to delight in using unpromising people like Ehud, to bring about his purposes. Friends, that's a wonderfully freeing truth for us because it means that he will use you and I. You may feel ordinary, weak even. You may think, I'm pretty unimpressive, inadequate, perhaps not spiritual enough. But none of those things are a barrier to God. 
In fact, he says he uses our weaknesses to show his strength. When it causes us to rely on his power and his strength, he delights to use the most unpromising cracked vessels like you and I. And God also delights in bringing about his purposes in the most unexpected ways. He showed that most gloriously, most beautifully, on a lonely hill outside of Jerusalem. Along with two lowly thieves, the king of the Jews looked as weak and helpless as anyone could possibly be, hanging on a cross, dying the most despised of deaths. His enemies were convinced that they had won. They hurled insults at him. They had killed this troublemaker from Galilee who claimed that he was the Messiah. But the brute force of Rome and the nails of the cross that held him there surely proved his claims to be king were a joke. But then who could have guessed how the story ends? How could Jesus have possibly crushed his enemies with his bloody broken body? But that's exactly what happened. Sin and death are trampled and buried as Jesus rose from the tomb. A saviour so surprising, so wonderfully unexpected that it seemed impossible until he rose from the grave. And it's at the cross, friends, that we see why the book of Judges is a book for us. Judges is a window to our souls. We may shake our heads at how fickle the people were, how quickly they forgot God, but we are just like the Israelites. Every bit as stubborn, every bit as sinful, incapable of turning to God. But then at that point, God saved us. He took the initiative not by a judge who gives us peace for a while but then dies, but by a saviour who died once and now lives eternally. And he saved us not because we deserved saving, not when we cried out, for, out in repentance. As Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners... While we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. A faithful God who didn't give up on us and unfaithful people who don't deserve his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this message of judges. We thank you that you raised up judges of your own initiative when the people still didn't deserve it. You didn't give up on your unfaithful people and you don't give up on us. And we thank you that you have shown that in Jesus, that you sent him to earth to live and die for us when we least deserved it. And you turned us back to you 
not on our not because we are good not because we are wise but because of your sheer grace by your own initiative we pray father that we would hear and respond to that uh, in gratitude and seek to live and follow uh, the king who is worth following and we pray it in jesus name amen